Now, here's a third example. Now, where he's using little children here, it's that same word, technon, that he used in verse 12, okay? Now, here's another verse. 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. You know what that Greek word is? Sons of God? Technon. Same word, Greek word, translated as little children in this 12th verse in eight other times plus throughout the first epistle. So John's use of technon, translated little children, is simply his pastoral heart. He loves the flock. And that's his, his, his term of endearment to them, all those then and now who are the recipients of his first epistle. However, having said that, John uses a different word in the King James and in many others. It's still translated little children in verse 13, the very end of the verse, and in verse 18. You look at verse 13. It says, I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. Well, all of God's children that are born of God know the Father, right? But this is a different word. I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. Verse 18, little children, it is the last time, etc. Talking about the end of time, it's whatever. That word translated, that Greek word translated little children is the word padia, P-A-I-D-A, padia, the plural there, children. And the difference between technia, this translated little children in verse 12, and padia, this here in verse 13, the end of the verse, and 18, technia, padia, there's a difference. The difference between the two words, both of them translated in our text here as little children, but the difference is this. Verse 12, when he says little children there, that word technia emphasizes the family nature and relationship again between a, a parent and a child, between his pastoral heart and his parishioners. Whereas Padilla, verse 13 and 18, refers to a child's minority status and under tutelage, under instruction. Okay? Is all that clear? I can start over. God forbid, huh? <laughs> Westcott, one of the commentators who did a lot of work on the Greek uh, translation, a later version, Padilla in verse 13, Dr. Westcott said way back again, long ago, Padilla in verse 13 differs from technia in verse 12 by emphasizing the idea of subordination and not kinship. So in verse 12, when he sees his little children, that word translated there, means kinship. You're my children in the faith. I love you, that sort of thing. And then in verse 13 and 18, it's subordination. These children are under instruction. So again, verse 12 is dressing up all of them. And then in 13, he begins to write words of affirmation by age group. And you notice, if you look there, in verse uh, 13, once we've gotten past verse 12, 
we're looking at verse 13. I write unto you fathers. I write unto you young men. I write unto you little children. There, their natural life cycle is very clear. Fathers, young men, children. The fathers are the ones that possess the spiritual depth and stability that has come through their years since they've been born of God, serving the Lord, walking in His Word over the passage of time. The young men are in their prime of their lives, but more importantly, these young men of whom He speaks are growing and spiritually in their walk with Christ. They're maturing. They're growing. The young born, young children, who are they? And that lasts for 13. Well, it says they have, they know the Father, right? That's what the verse says. They know the Father. Right now, you little children, because you have known the Father, that means these are children elect of God that have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are newborns in the faith. And they were doing with them what we would do with our own. Some have just come to Christ in the last year. And so we're carefully instructing them. We're seeing that they're in Sunday school and they're in worship and in our family devotionals at home, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what these little children who have known the Father are receiving. They're under the care of the church, the tutelage of their parents and the church and bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So in verse 13a, the first part of it, John writes counsel to the fathers. He's the elder members of the fellowship. And you know something? Growth in Jesus should always be commensurate with time in Jesus. Right? Growth in Jesus should always be commensurate with time in Jesus. And you know what? It's not always that way. It's just flat and not always that way, unfortunately. And I'm no one's judge. But I'll tell you, I've met some folks that were in Christ a long time, they said, that were just... I don't want to say biblical illiterates, but they just didn't know a whole lot about this precious Word of God. I'd have met some, some others that were young, younger even than me. <laughs> and I guess, of course. When I met my son-in-law, my future son-in-law, Daniel, who married my youngest daughter, and we were getting acquainted, and he was courting her, and Waver and I were spending time with him. I told Wade one night, because I spent some time talking to him, trying to figure out what he was made of, as any dad would, you know. And I told Waverly one night, I said, baby. And he was only like 20, 30 or 4 years old. Five, maybe. I said, that's the most spiritually mature, well-read young man I've ever met in my life, his age. And he is. He'd been on a mission field for a year, whatever, he was in the Word. He still is in the Word. And he should be, and the young people should be, young men and young women ought to be getting with it. 
and time in Jesus ought to always be commensurate with maturity in Jesus for all of us, regardless of our age. Don't care for the text, though, because you have known him that is from the beginning. There's another pair of those little italicized words. Italicized words mean they're not in the original text. Because you have known him from the beginning. You take out the that is. Because you fathers have known him from the beginning. Now certainly, well, let me just insert this first. The interlinear Greek-English New Testament, that's got the Greek here and the English here, or converse, if you've got a reverse, you know, whatever. It says this, I write to you fathers because you have known the one from the beginning. You have known the one from the beginning. Interlinear, boy, it cuts across the end. It's a literal translation. It says, I write, fathers, you have known the beginning. That's all it's got. Now, certainly, Jesus is the one that is from the beginning, from everlasting to everlasting. No question about that. And that is the one, that one is the one that they knew personally as Savior. But these fathers were the ones in the fellowship that had known the Lord Jesus Christ for decades now personally as Savior. They, have, they believed the gospel savingly when they first heard it, which might have well have been within a few days or certainly a very few short years post-crucifixion and resurrection time. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They were born of God, and they've been serving the Lord in the local church all during this time, continuing in the fellowship of the church. And you know, when you look at these fathers, here there are fathers. And he does, John doesn't say anything about their spiritual maturity. He doesn't say anything about them overcoming the wicked one. It's interesting to me. You know, an argument from silence is very is notoriously dangerous. Right? But I'm gonna venture into that arena in just a moment. <laughs> John's silence in that area might suggest his knowledge of them was this. They've been in the fa- fellowship of the faith for decades. John, this is written in probably the 90s, John had known these guys gals for decades he knew them to be pillars in the faith no need to say anything about them overcoming this or that or the other he knew them as the pillars in the church the strong ones in the church Uh, through all these years he he observed them and heard them and knew they were solid in the faith solid in the fellowship the body of christ that's my opinion. I think it may be a good one because he didn't say anything else about them. He didn't say anything about them other than they, they knew him <laughs> from the beginning of the church, the Christian church. Well, I don't know. That may be just conjecture on my part, but I'll tell you something. It sure ought to be that way. If they've been in Christ Jesus for decades, they ought to be the pillars in the church. 
there ought to be the solid rock foundation that the church could grow on. It ought to be that way. God help us if it's not. Then John talks to the young men. Verse 13, I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. Notice though, he says that twice. He says at the end of verse 14. In the middle of that, he says, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you. That's sandwiched in between you have overcome the wicked one. Of course, young men, that Greek word there just means young man. Somewhere between 20 and 40 years of age or something like that. They were strong and a prime of life physically and whatever. But this has nothing to do with that. John is writing about their spiritual strength. That's what the context is here. Their spiritual strength. But this Greek word translated strong, it means having strength or power greater than average or expected. These young men had spiritual strength greater than average. Bless God. Who wants to be spiritually average anyway? Greater than average. Greater that was, an ex- that was expected. These men were, young men were growing in grace through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. John said, the word of God abides in you. That's it. (laughs) That's the key. You young men that have overcome the wicked one, the word of God abides in you. What did that tell you about John and them? That tells you that John knew these guys and knew whereof he spoke. I know that the word of God is abiding in you, John, Jim, Jack. Mary, Sue, whoever, I know that God's word is abiding in you. That's a present tense active verb. Continuing to abide in them. Literally, the word of God living in them. This is the living word of God, right? And we fill our hearts and souls with it. We saturate our souls with it. It's living in us. That was their strength, the key to their strength to overcome the wicked one. Living word of God, living literally in them. The word of God, as Colossians would say it, 3.16, dwelling richly in them. The word of God dwelling richly in them. The result being that, as Paul said, they were being sanctified and cleansed by the washing of the water of word, Ephesians 5.26. The living word of God in them, being sanctified and cleansed on the inside by the washing and cleansing of the word of God. So instead of being conformed to the world, they were being transformed by the renewing of their mind because that living word was abiding in them. The same formula is true for all of us. That's it. Same formula is true for all of us. All of us that are serious about doing our reasonable service, as Paul says, and proving what is that good and agreeable will of God, that's our formula. 
that the living word of God abides in us. So we can prove what is that perfect and acceptable, holy will of our Father. All during, all during the years of our earthly sojourn. And ladies and gentlemen, we ought to be known for that. You know, I've never been known for much of anything. (laughs) But I want to be known for that. That God's word abides in me. It's alive in me and they can see it in me. And I don't have to necessarily open my mouth. Of course, I'm prone to do that. But they can see that I'm alive in Christ Jesus the Lord. And then they can say, Sister, what is it with you anyway? They see Jesus in you. Psalm 119, 9 through 11 gives us the pathway to personal victory. It gives us the pathway to personal victory over the enemy within, which is our flesh, and the enemy without, which according to Luther's term, the devils are thicker than rooftops out there. So how do we overcome the enemy within our flesh? To have a perfect crucifixion of it on a daily basis. Through the word. Wherewithal shall a young man, an old man, a middle-aged man, a child, or girl, cleanse his way or her way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart, with my whole heart, have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander for thy commandments. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That is the key to overcoming the flesh in my life and your life is this right here. This. The cleansing. And boy, these young men must have been doing that because John mentioned it twice. That they're overcoming the wicked one. They were pressing forward. They were working on their personal progressive sanctification. They were growing in Christ. And John knew that. And others about them knew that. Abiding consistently. They were abiding consistently in God's word. And you might say, well, wait, Ray. That's not what the text says. It doesn't say they were abiding consistently in the Word of God. It says the Word of God was abiding in them. You've misread the text. Well, if you said that, the text didn't say that, you would be right. The text does not say that. The text does not say they were abiding in the Word of God. The text says that the Word of God was abiding in them. How did it get there? The only way the Word of God can abide in you and me is to pay the price of abiding in the word ourselves in our private study in our worship together our classes together to abide in the word of God and they had to be doing that and you and I have got to be doing that if the word of God is going to abide in us and transform our minds 
rather than being conformed to what everybody out there on the outside of these walls wants to do to our minds. It has to abide in us. They will overcome the wicked, he says to occasions. This is the weapon. <laughs> this is the weapon for the wicked right here, to overcome the wicked. That's why it's hated, you know. Why it's mocked. But it'll sure defeat the devils outside and the flesh on the inside. There's just no other way. Then John's counsel, wise cautions concerning the world. Verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The word love is a present active word. It means actively loving Actively feeling loyalty toward the world. Don't be actively loving the world. Don't be actively feeling loyalty toward that system out there, the world. Cosmos is the Greek word. It means that world system and the people, the constituents of that system whose values and beliefs and morals are a distraction and, a dis- and they're distinctly different and are in rebellion against the word of God and his purposes for our lives. Don says, don't love that. Don't love that. Things in the world are a little bit different. It means a created order as opposed to here on earth as opposed to heaven. And the issue is this. That the world systems <clears throat> and its values are always a seductive influence when Christians, which Christians must, must, must avoid. The world systems and its values are always a seductive influence. We've got to resist it. And here's a word of warning. You cannot passively resist the world. It's impossible. You cannot passively resist the world's system and the world's values and its world's influence. And someone might say, well, preacher, you know, me, I, I just stay home, you know. I don't get out there in that world so I don't be influenced by it. I just stay home all the time, protect my soul so I won't be influenced. So what do you do in your spare time? Oh, I watch a lot of television. Hello? <laughs> God help us. God help us. I don't care where you sit, under what rock you hide, you can't passively resist the influence of the world. You know why? Let's say you're hiding in a cave somewhere, okay? But you've got an enemy in there with you. You know what it is? Your flesh. And your flesh has been influenced by the world before you went into hiding. I hope you took the Bible with you in the cave. Or you've got one tremendous memory. Because this is the weapon against the wicked influences of the world. And every knothead out there is trying to influence you with their degraded system of life. The word is everything to us. We need to come together. We need to study. We need to pray together. We need to be faithful here in coming together. 
Coming down 49, big travel trailers, pulling boats, motorhomes, four-wheelers, ATVs. Boy, they must have been having a con- you know, convention somewhere. And you know something? This is the, I really felt this. I felt a tinge of sorrow for them. I didn't know them. I'm not their judge. But you know something, ladies and gentlemen? If you've got friends out there that are not members of the church, but say they're saved, they just don't come to church, kind of got out of the habit, so to speak, they'll say, or whatever, they're to be pitied. Because you can't stand still spiritually. Because the world is not standing still. The waves are coming in on the shore of your soul continuously and relentlessly. You cannot stand still spiritually. You've got to keep moving. I pastored in Kemp, Texas. There was a guy out north of town there that had a tire shop. And he had a separate room out there that was empty. And he had an air conditioner in that thing and a heat pump combination. So all of us who like to work out with weights, we put all our stuff together and had us a nice private gym out there. I spent a lot of time talking to him. This guy, his brother was in our church, a solid Christian, one of the deacons. This guy was lost as a goose. I talked to him all the time, became good friends with him. He was one of those mountain climbers. He climbed these straight walls. I said, you know, Donnie, his name was Donnie. Donnie, you're crazy. Oh, no, you get acclimated. This acclimated nothing. I didn't want to do that. But then he got into climbing ice walls, and he showed me these ice-climbing boots and this paraphernalia that he put on to climb these solid ice walls. And you know what he said? He said, Ray, it's not like climbing another wall, another cliff. When you start climbing an ice wall, you can't stop. You have to keep going. I said, why is that? He said, because your body temperature will melt the ice and you start going down. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the issue. We can't stop. And is this a laborious, boring task? Gracious, no. If you believe that, you haven't been this enough. This is the most exciting thing I've ever read in my life. Particularly... As the Pentecostals say, when the anointing of the Holy Ghost moves on you and you're in this thing, you don't want to leave it. You want to keep on going and filling your, filling your soul with the Word of God. There's nothing like it. Plus the fact it's true from Genesis to the maps. You don't have to worry about what you're taking in when you're sitting home being passively resistant to the Word of God and watching your television. Well, the persistent problem... All that is in that world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. Now, you know what's interesting about this text? Oh, yes, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and pride of life. Oh, yeah. No, this text is talking about what's in us. See, the world's out there, and it's our, the lust of our eyes and the lust of our flesh and the pride of our life. It's our enemy. It's not what's going on between their ears and their heart. It's what's in our hearts is our enemy. We have to deal with with the word of God and our progressive sanctification, maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ. How much you think, really, 
each of us has and are investing of our time, our talents, the finances into the world's value system, the world's system. How much? Or better yet, maybe a way, better way to frame the question would be, how much is the world investing in us to the effect of watering down our witness for Christ? Because that's the agenda, ladies and gentlemen. This is, oh, this shouldn't be seen in the marketplace. You shouldn't be going around saying Jesus is the only way to God. It'll offend Oprah and all her followers. To water down our witness. You know, I heard this when I was a kid. Son, you can't lift a barrel when you're standing in it. That's true, isn't it? Just cannot lift a barrel when you're standing in it. But the barrel of the world can be very appealing to the flesh. Can be. Why, it's socially acceptable. It's filled with folks living the good life, so they think. And they will enjoy your company and my company as long as we dress like they do, think like they do, look like they do, accept what they're doing. See, it's a socially acceptable place to them, and we're socially acceptable with them as long as we accept what they're socially about. But God help you if your light for Jesus shines a little bit too brightly in their eyes because you know what? You won't be in that barrel long. And you shouldn't be in the barrel at all. And this testimony, verse 15, and the love of the Father is not in him. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the love of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is written to the church written to someone who's struggling with all of this love and lust for the world and system. John's saying the love of the Father is not predominant in him. The love of the Father is not ruling the course of his life. And he's chasing after that, which is passing. Verse 17, the world passeth away. The word passeth away, perigo, it's a present tense passive. Listen to that. Present tense passive verb. That world is passing away. It's in a passive tense. What does that mean? This world can't do nothing about it. It's passing away. And you know what? It's all right on schedule with the Father. This time clock of eternity has been held in His hand and always will be held in His hand. And this temporal existence on earth is likewise just as securely held in His hand at its passing away. I read just this week a physician friend that I've known in, for decades now in Hideaway. He and his wife were up in Colorado. Brakes went out on ATV. Killed him. Hurt her. Happens quickly. The world's passing away. We're passing away. But you know what? In the purest sense of the word, we're not passing away. We're just passing through. Just passing through. 
You know, in my passive resistance time, I watch gun smoke. (laughs) Confession's good to the soul. So does Pastor Dan, too, by the way. Watch gun smoke, and you'll find this hoodlum or this gunslinger comes to Dodge, and Marshall Dillon confronts him and said, What's your business here? He said, Oh, Marshall, I'm just passing through. Well, they're not, but we are. We're just passing through this place. And one day, bless God, we'll be through, passing through, to go to a place we'll never pass through, the realms of glory. So in the meantime, John says, watch out for the lust of your flesh and the lust of your eyes and this pride in this temporal world system. So you don't accumulate a lot of, accumulate a lot of fleshly baggage. that hinders our fellowship with the Father and waters down our witness for him on the way home. <laughs> Let's pray. Oh, my Father, God help us. Lord God, help us be like be bright, shining lights in a world of darkness. Lord, we know we're living behind enemy lines. God, give us grace to not love it, but to stand for you and let our light shine. May it be known of us, every one of us, that we are those that belong to you, Lord Jesus. And your word is living in us. Not for any earthly recognition that we would get from the world, Lord. We don't want that. We want, Lord, to know that we're pleasing you, we're honoring you, and we're serving you in a way that you purpose for us to save you, serve you when you saved us, Father. And may by your grace, Lord, we do it all the way home. In the wonderful, peerless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Let's sing a song together.